in this episode with Chloe Wright. We allow things to happen. We allow children to see domestic violence in the home and wonder why they strike out later or wonder why they do ram raids or take other people's things because they weren't valued. But my purpose was to create a space that women actually had a legal right to but weren't getting and that I could show the government, instead of just saying, I would like to do this or do that, but I could show with data and with the narrative that this made a massive difference in the start of life for women's mental health, therefore the health of the child. Um, there, are, there are changes, not just physically, but in society. You're expected to do and be certain people, and I've always been a free spirit, and I found that hard. I found, um, you know, when you're a teenager in the 60s and women didn't have the same um, stature, if you like, that men did, and I've always fought against that. Um, it wasn't that I was for women's liberation. It was that I've always been for people's liberation. Um, I don't look at gender or age or any of those things as being something that defines someone. Mm. Um, I'll just tell you something that's a bit personal. But about once a year, it used to be about twice a year, now once a year, maybe less, I have a great need to have a good cry. And I've found that in my life's work, my work now, uh, I've seen so much, heard so much, that I've made the decision not to let it um, disrupt the work that I do. Uh, some is so painful. So I'll go into town in my car and I'll play Sarah Brightman singing um, Puccini's Time to Say Goodbye. So for 20 minutes, I can be driving. I can still see, but I will be just shedding buckets of tears. By the time I get to town, it's all gone, all happy. Men, and in these times, I think a lot of men don't understand, you know, what's my role? Where do I fit? Um, they were probably about the 70s, kind of pushed to the side, we don't need men kind of thing, never believed that. A great dad, three great brothers, four sons, a husband. I like men. Men are really interesting creatures.
Chloe, thank you for um, giving up your time to be here today. I really appreciate that. Um, Thank you, Steve. And um, I'd like to start, if I could, by asking you a question that relates to the title of our show, Life's Work. How would you describe what your life's work is? Um, My life's work, I guess you only come to that at a certain point. You don't know that you're working towards anything. But I I think nature, nurture, environment... um, the things that affect you in life bring you to that point if you're lucky enough to um, recognise it and grab it. My life's work, I would say, in the last, probably since I became a parent, um, was about, is about helping people, particularly my children when they were little, become all they can be, watching the development Um, seeing potential, and I see this all the time um, in individuals, or possibilities for groups or others or business or um, initiatives, ideas, and I want to jump in. And I I, I do tend to do that. (laughs) To jump in, yeah. 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 So what would have been your... Like you said, you're quite right. I think you know your life's work becomes apparent over time. If if we if we go yeah. back um, a step to when you were younger than a child, um, okay, what were you thinking that you might grow up to do and be? What were your hopes and aspirations then? I think as a child, I had a lot of freedom. Um, I was the last of nine children. I grew up with boys mostly, so it was all about adventure, um, risk-taking, fun. Um, I was an avid reader, and I think that influenced me greatly, particularly, I would say, Oscar Wilde. Um, We would listen to, on Sunday mornings, because I'm quite old, um, and in those times we would climb into bed, particularly my, my brother and I, and listen to the children's programs. And I loved um, The Happy Prince and The Selfish Giant, and I waited for those programs. And I think they had a great influence. Our family didn't have a great deal, but we were big, we were musical, we were readers, um, and I think storytellers. Um, My background is English and Irish, and I think that's where the storytelling comes from. We had a lot of fun. Uh, Then I think at the young teenage years, um, I felt the difference in how others approach me. You know, when when you get to puberty and suddenly you're not really playing with the boys all the time. Um, there are there are changes, not just physically, but in society. You're expected to do and be certain people, and I've always been a free spirit, and I found that hard. I found, um, you know, when you're a teenager in the 60s, and women didn't have the same um, stature, if you like, that men did, and I've always fought against that. Um, It wasn't that I was for women's liberation. It was that I've always been for people's liberation. Um, I don't look at 
gender or age or any of those things as being something that defines someone. Mm. I remember doing research um, about 30, 40 years ago into middle age. And it was quite interesting because I found that nobody put themselves in that category. They didn't want to. And it was basically decided in, in anthropology that if you could be looking after a younger generation and an older one, you're in that, uh, you're in that scope. Um, and I looked closely at gender roles, and I've always found it unfair um, that one should be put in categories. Uh, I think that one's identity is who they are, um, if they've been raised to be free and to um, to reach the potential. And we talk about this a lot in the foundation about reaching potential because potential is something that comes, I believe, um, your personality comes with you when you're born and it's the nurture and the environment that either allows that to flourish or not. Mm. Uh, but there is, or while there's life, there's hope. Mm. And it's about being brave. Um, and I don't actually believe in coincidence. I believe in opportunity. So when something happens or there's a knock on the door, if you look at it as potential uh, and it's good, then you grab it and you go with it. You talked about um, as I there was a few things within what you just said there, Chloe, Chloe. That maybe suggest that you don't like to be boxed, or you don't think that people should be boxed. As in, you know, like yeah. even even the middle aged thing. You know, so if if you if you're looking after someone older and someone younger, then you're you're middle aged. And but people don't like to be called labelled as that. They don't no. like to be boxed. So that freedom that you're talking. About. Oh, absolute freedom. Um, I. I couldn't be constrained as a child and I was lucky that my parents um, seemed to actually be enjoy and be somewhat amused. Uh, I, I'm sure that in these times I perhaps might have been labelled ADD or um, oh, what's the term now that we have? Um, and I should... Uh, it's a... Oh, neuro, neurodiversive. Um, but really, it's just that my own five children, I've looked at them as they've developed and I have watched for who they are and relished that and, and tried to encourage that in their way of being. And I think that if we did more of that with our children, just look at who they are, take the time be present with them in that moment, listen to them, listen to not just our children, but anyone. You know, who are you? And you'll find that people are the most amazing creatures. Mm. Uh, but no one's actually asked them that. Or what would you like to do? Or who do you want to be? And um, it's really quite fascinating. So... I don't think, I don't think people should be constrained. Mm. Except, of course, we have a social contract mm. in society, and you can't just be off doing whatever that might harm others. 
but there is such massive potential in the human brain, um, and who knows why. I read a lot, so I read a book, and I'm often struck by what an incredible brain that thought of this. Mm. Um, yeah, reading is very important to me. In fact, it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I discovered children left school who couldn't read. That would never have occurred to me. Uh, I think that um, books and homes are really important. I think music is really important. That's our first language. We hear, hear it before we're born. It's what moves us. It's what... Um, I'll just tell you something that bit personal. But about once a year, used to be about twice a year, now once a year, maybe less. I have a great need to have a good cry. And I've found that in my life's work, my work now, uh, I've seen so much, heard so much, that I've made the decision not to let it um, disrupt the work that I do. Uh, some is so painful. So I'll go into town in my car and I'll play Sarah Brightman singing um, Puccini's Time to Say Goodbye. So for 20 minutes, I can be driving. I can still see, but I will be just shedding buckets of tears. By the time I get to town, it's all gone, all happy. <laughs> that's your kind of release? That is my release. Hmm. Probably only about once a year. And I love that music. And I love that I can feel absolutely cleansed hmm. and keep going. Yeah, music is powerful. We can use it in lots of different ways. Love music. Yeah. Going back to reading, who encouraged you to read then? So you said you were reading a lot as a child. Was, yeah. was that a family thing? Was it was a family thing because way back then um, we didn't have television until I was about 14 and we had books. We had good books and I remember reading, oh, I think I was only about eight or nine, Physician of Ur and it was a big book. Um, it was my dad's book, and it was about Egypt. And I remember reading um, about uh, the mummification and about how they, they took the brain through the nostrils with pincers and about how they mummified bodies and about the scribes and about um, the Nile. And, and I found it fascinating. And then I read numerous books that um, were probably wouldn't, Children of that age probably wouldn't read normally. And then my parents bought me those lovely books that you folded out and they had um, all of the three-dimensional pictures. Yeah, the and there were, there, yeah. were, there were pixies and elves and fairies and I just loved that and I always imagined. I think I probably had a very, very fertile imagination and I think that's from reading. It's from um, a lot of, I'd say, a lot of laughter in the in the family, um, being free to express yourself. Um, and yeah, um, I've I've been a lot to a lot of places, and you can just through reading. Mm, yeah, I've so, learned. Yeah. So through reading, did you have? Did your imagination kind of formulate what who you wanted to be? You mentioned about you know, people asking 
who are you, who do you want to be? You know, is that mm. were your parents influential in, in what you were going to do, you know, through school and after school? No, not really. I don't think they thought they could be that. They were very influential without trying to influence. Right. You know, I recognise this now. Um, I think that the stories of Oscar Wilde were very influential. And I, when I can relate it back to how I find it very, very hard to say no, and I do have to say no quite often, um, I think of the Happy Prince, and I wish all children could have that read to them a number of times. Uh, it's about... The, the story is about a statue that's covered in gold, and... A little swallow lives there with the, with the happy prince, he was called. And he doesn't fly south um, in the cold. He stays because he flies and he sees what's happening in homes. And he is wants to support, so bit by bit he takes the gold leaf from the prince and delivers it to those in need and sees how their life changes. You know, the, the person in the garret um, sewing till midnight and um, the, per the little matchstick girl type of thing and changes lives and eventually dies at the feet of the happy prince who now has all his gold stripped off of him. Um, and we listen to that Sunday after Sunday and the selfish giant, that was another one. Um, and I am sure that my mother knew the influence. I am sure they did things um, to teach us resilience, to teach us to wait. That was a hard thing um, when you're a child. But the lessons you learn, and you don't need, you know, I can see this, you don't need to have a lot of money, don't need to have much at all. We had security. We had parents who didn't, they never did drink. And, you know, I don't see anything wrong with drinking, but, but they didn't. They always used good language. Um, yeah, we played a lot. My brother and I and the boys down, the Tainui boys, were always playing. Um, or I was reading. I didn't really play with the girls much. I didn't like the girls' games. It was all about someone being the bride and getting dressed up and having weddings. <laughs> so um, that just was not me. And um, what was me was um, building a canoe and going down the river and getting into trouble for doing all these things. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and my mother always said, and it used to drive me crazy, she would say, oh, she's going to be a wonderful mother one day. And I had no, you know, I, I never played with the pram, but I had the doll, the, uh, all the other little things that all the girls had. Um, but I have loved motherhood. Mm, mm. It's been an incredible adventure. Yeah. 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 I'm, it's interesting what you're saying about your parents influencing without... Overly, overtly influencing. Mm. You know, there's there's a difference, isn't there? A subtle difference between teaching someone yeah. overtly and and influencing them over time. I think 
and in, in the sort of leadership space from a training point of view, we, we've got to recognise that we're, we are influencing all the time, mm. whether yeah. we realise it or not. And as parents, we're influencing all the time. Our kids are learning oh. from us, Absolutely. even if we're not intending to teach them something. Yeah. And, and being mindful of that and mm. having that consciousness around that, I think, is really important. Otherwise, we, we wonder why they maybe become who they've become. <laughs> Yeah. And how did that happen? Well, they were following someone. So it's really important, isn't it? Well, I think that that's the most important. You know, what we work at now is supporting parents to nourish their children to thrive. And if you've got parents who support you, who nourish you, who when you when you feel safe, I think all of the children in our family felt safe. And now I know there are so many who are not safe in their home. Um, they're safer out of their home. And I cannot begin to imagine what my life would have been like under those circumstances. Um, it's everything. Security. When a baby's born, you know, people think, oh, they need love. They need security. They need to know that they're safe. Um, they need to know they're safe in the womb. You know, a lot of premature babies will be born um, with mothers on um, on drugs. And so as soon as they can get out of there, they're going to get out of there, which is not a healthy beginning. Uh, you know, y you learn a lot. I've learned a lot. Um, I, am, I think I'm the most fortunate person on the planet because I had the upbringing I had. Mm. I may have been kind of wild and um, not wild in a bad way, wild <laughs> in, a, in a freedom way. Um, and I still, uh, you know, there are things I'm interested in that we've talked about. Architecture. I couldn't be an architect. I would be the faulty towers of architecture. <laughs> we just, <laughs> you know, I, I need to be doing, moving and, um, and moving on. You've, you've touched on you know, a, a couple of times there about talking about um, early childhood and, and birth and what, what we're doing, referring to yourself and, and the foundation. Maybe for, for those who, who don't know who Chloe Wright is, um, can you tell me, maybe I'll, I'll throw that question back at you. Who, <laughs> who are you, Chloe? What, what is it that, um. that, that, that you do and, and that you're about now? Maybe we can talk about that in a bit more detail. I think, I think I found myself, if you like, I think we all recognise that expression. Um, I found myself mostly, we had been living overseas. We had created um, some pretty big business in civil engineering and so forth and had done very well. Uh, decided to come back to New Zealand and get involved in something really worthwhile. Sorry, this is you and your husband? My, my husband oh, yes. and I. Yeah. We looked at politics and decided that um, there's no privacy in that. Um, you, you probably change your um, ethical values quite possibly. And I'm not saying that, that all politicians do, but you have to make compromises, I'm quite sure about that. Uh, and then we, we looked at... Um, early childhood uh, and thought we can actually really be constructive in, in um, having an influence on children's early lives 
getting creating a space where um, children can learn about socialization and 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 in with that word what I'm meaning is that to work together to learn through play to be in an environment where they're nurtured nourished by people who have who know how to do that you know as a parent um, I felt that I did but what I see now is a wider a wider world awaits them and as long as they can be in a home that is secure um, has love um, encourages them you know we rely too much on school being the be-all and end-all. We need an education, but it's not entirely up to the government or to the teacher. You know, as parents, we should be reading to our children way before they go to school. We should be encouraging them in so many things. It's those first 1,000 days, 2,000 days, that really set the pattern. There's a saying... Um, Sometimes we spend the second half of our life trying to get over the first half because if we haven't had that right, that good nurture, that sense of security and being able to be who we can be, then we're struggling to find it after that. I was always um, happy in my freedom, but coming back... Um, where I really found what I wanted to do was an incident where a young a boy stole some something of from our children. And in doing that, I, as the parent, was invited to be part of the um, as well as a parent and considered the victim in this. Part of what would happen to this young 16-year-old boy? And so I decided that, well, I, I talked to the police and I said, what I'd like is for him to read three books. He had left school and he was moving now with a little gang of boys who had had um, negative uh, influences in their life. So... They agreed to this. So I got A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, very important book that was influential in my life, uh, The Concrete Jungle, and Gandhi, the story of Gandhi. And so he was to read a book once a month. It, he could, had 30 days to read it. He had to write just 300 words or more if he wanted on the book, and he and I would sit and discuss it. Uh, and I felt that these would really help this young boy. Anyway, um, and if he didn't, then then I would just turn him back to whatever the system was going to do. So he didn't complete it the first month, and I said to them, can we have another month? And we did, and he didn't do it. And I handed him back, and I have regretted that ever since because after that I found he'd left school and he couldn't read. And it would never have crossed my mind that you couldn't read when you left school. And he was too ashamed to tell me. And I still, all these years later, feel that loss. But I determined 
at that time that I would do something, whatever I could do for that um, situation. And there have been a number of situations, I think, in, in our lives that we, the watershed moments that affect us deeply um, and we make decisions, we would, and usually the decision is, oh, I would like to do this or I would like to do that. And very often um, people, oh, if I won the lottery, I would do all these things. But actually, you don't need to win the lottery. You just need to make that inner commitment and understand that once you're an adult, you actually have a role to mentor others. And um, it's not a matter of giving back so much, it's a matter of paying it forward. And I have never in my life felt, apart from the birth of my children, felt the joy in seeing a life turn around. And often by the small, well, to me, the smallest, simplest acts. Um, I have talked to people whose lives have turned around and we don't always know what we've done. Sometimes it can be 20 years later, 30 years later, you run into someone and they say, oh, remember when you said to me something? Or remember when you gave me whatever it was? And actually you don't remember it, but it made all the difference. And in that, we all can do something. Um, I, I listened on the radio this morning on the way in here and someone was quoting Ronald Reagan and they said he had a quote, you can't, you can't change everything but you, everyone can, oh, it was, how it was like, you can't give everything to everyone but everyone can give something to someone. And, and I thought, sometimes we just need to be brave. We don't need to worry about what's going to happen if we say this or, or do that. Because we'll never know the good might, that might happen if we do do it. Um, I'm just I'm thinking about your... I suppose what I'm gleaning about who you are, Chloe, when you... In that situation with that boy and, you know, ordinarily I'm going to say, um, having worked in the, in, the, in the police myself, as, as, mm -hmm. as you're aware of, I think most people would have just left that boy to the system and whatever that meant and then moved on. But you felt that there was an opportunity there. You would mentioned mm -hmm. that about every situation is an opportunity to try and impart some knowledge, wisdom, albeit maybe from someone else in a, in, a, in a book form that might influence someone. So I think that speaks volumes about what, who you are and where you're coming from. But also I think the fact that you were able to acknowledge and reflect that you hadn't considered something as part of that, the fact that he might not be able to read mm -hmm. and that that's, that taught you a, a lesson also says something about you and your w willingness and openness to, to learning and self-reflecting as a person. Yeah, I think... I think, when I, you know, who am I? It's, it's kind of a hard question to answer. Um, I'm not afraid 
I think, I don't think what I've got to lose, you know, if I think about it, I mean, I do tend to just move in the way that I move. So I'm not afraid. I do reflect. I love to learn. I value that we're just on the planet for a time and everyone else who is on here with them, if we our paths cross, there's an opportunity. Um, I have loved, you know, I, I've loved learning about others, and we shouldn't other the other, but ways, you know, I've been in, in prison a number of times, and and I and I sometimes I love the reaction to that, but the the prison I've been into, I walk straight out again the same day. So I'll just make that clear. But um, being with the women who are incarcerated and seeing the talent um, that's there, starting to understand why they're there, understanding that. I could so easily have been there if my life had not begun the way it did. If I had not made... I make choices. I make choices on how I will be, how I will let something affect me. I choose how to think. Because if I didn't choose, I could be overwhelmed by the pain that I see, the sense of hopelessness, um, despair that I encounter pretty much on a daily basis. But I think we get to that where it's not about um, not being brave. It's not about worrying about what will happen if I do this or if I do that. It really is about jump in and start swimming. Um, that's what I do. That's what I've always done. I've always been a risk taker. And, you know, we must be who we are. Um, and that's where I want to be when I see those, the little sparkle in someone or the potential or, or someone talks about what they wish they could do um, is jumping in behind them. You know, it is about giving a hand up when you can. But recognising at times people are not ready for that yet. You know, there's another lovely quote that I that that I use sometimes and it's I spent my whole life tuning my violin and never got to play my song. And that's the saddest thing when I see that happening to people. Mm. Well, that's who I am, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So you, when you jump in, you jumped into early childhood. So, so just before we touch on that, was, was the situation or event that you talked about with the, with the boy and, and the books, the reading, was that one of the reasons or triggers for you to look at early childhood as a... You know, I, 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 think, I think it was, Steve, because, you know, you, some things you don't think too deeply about, some things that affect you greatly, they affect you in your heart, they affect you, they affect you in your brain, you put your heart and your brain together, 
Um, your gut is what gives you the, um, the power, if you like, the drive. And I've always thought of that vagus nerve that we have that connects the three. It takes the three of those things. Um, that happened. We had come back here. We'd been financially very successful um, through um, telecommunications, through um, civil engineering, you know, in a big country where you can be very successful. And, and the question was, what are we going to do with this? Mm. We want to do something worthwhile. We've always been driven by, not by financial gain, but by purpose. And financial gain does give you a greater ability in your purpose. Uh, and so, as I said, you know, it could have been politics or this door opened in a very small way, but we saw it, uh, the potential, in a much bigger way. And that's where we went with that. We do other things um, uh, business-wise to create the ability to be able to do what we're doing here. Yeah. So the, the if I can, talk about the early childhood mm -hmm. centres that you've got because that's a, a very successful um, business and, and, and model. C can you talk to us about how... So how, how did that start? Well, that was kind of interesting. Without using names, we had um, friends. Um, he was a professional man and his wife and sister-in-law had a uh, early learning centre. Um, all the will in the world, but they couldn't make it work um, as a business model. And we looked at it and saw that as, well, that can be a business model, but why not create it into something that can have a huge influence on a lot of children and their early start in life? Uh, and so it's like a lot of things we've done. You look at an idea and you realise it's about scale uh, and that's what can make it work. And with no experience in the area whatsoever, but being my husband and I are both mavericks, um, we're both, me more so, risk takers, and you, in business, you never, what they say, beat the, uh, bet the farm or have all your eggs in one basket. Um, and so we headed off there. Um, it has been the most satisfying thing to be involved with. We have worked with the best people. Uh, teachers are an incredible, incredible personalities, if you like, in there. They have... I think they're born teachers. We should all be teachers in one way or another. Um, and we are, whether we, whether we recognise it or not. Um, but, but teachers who have the skill and the passion and the commitment and who work with young children, and, you know, they, they're, not, they're not valued in society the way that they should be, I think. I think unions and society puts a value of money on everything as, instead of putting it on what it should be. Um, you know, there is no greater call than being a teacher, in my view. Uh, we had an incident one time 
few just a few years ago, where um, someone left a note in our letterbox and they'd like to get married um, on our property. And we'd had a couple of weddings and I thought, oh. No, I, I politely declined and got another letter. Um, and so, you know, it isn't anyone who might hear this, please don't take advantage of this, but <laughs> I, find it very, I find it very hard to say no. Anyway, got another letter and he mentioned he was a teacher. And that was the end of it for me. So I was like, well, as you're a teacher and I want to show somehow that I absolutely value teachers, yes, of course, you can have your wedding there. Um, and they had a wonderful, wonderful wedding. Uh, but, you know, we can all do that. We can all show how much we value people in whatever role it is. I value the people who pick up our rubbish. I mean, what would it be like if they weren't there. Um, I find value in so many things and I get frustrated when I'm talking to people and all they seem to value or talk about is those who have done very well um, financially and they don't even know them. Why, won't we be, why aren't we talking about those who do creative work or who look after the children, or who do the volunteer work. I mean, we have amazing people volunteering. You know, we support super grands. I love that. Um, bringing generations together. And we're kind of all about that. We're, we're all about, we're certainly about women's empowerment um, mm. because, you know, I learned that the hard way as a teenager in the 60s. I'm very much about women using their voice. But I'm also about men, and in these times, I think a lot of men don't understand, you know, what's my role? Where do I fit? Um, they were probably about the 70s, kind of pushed to the side, we don't need men kind of thing, never believed that. Great dad, three great brothers, four sons, a husband. I like men. Men are really interesting creatures. <laughs> <laughs> but they are. You know, I mean, having teenage sons and seeing how the emotion um, that they go through and how, how, how sons are just as affected but maybe slightly differently than, than teenage girls. I mean... There is such feeling, but they're, they're taught to be staunch and to not cry and all of that nonsense. Um, they're, they're, you know, we don't mind laughing, but what's the problem with crying? It's, um, it's just another emotion. And it shows that we're, and, and I have this saying I say to people all the time, you know, this separates us from the zebras. You know, we cry, we laugh, we feel... Um, those in the medical field um, uh, are often taught not to feel. No, feel. You know, feel it because you'd feel it if it was your sister or brother or auntie. Um, if, if we don't feel, we don't connect, do we? No. Or if we, if we look like we don't feel, it's harder for us to connect. Yeah. So I think, you know, like if you're talking about in the medical field there, you know, I, you know, again, relate back to my previous work history where... If you don't express or show that you uh, you can, we obviously can't have people in in pieces doing their job. 
but you've got to connect on a, connect on an emotional level. That's part of the. Yeah. I hate to use the term customer experience, but it kind of is. It's like if you, if you don't feel that the other person feels, it's cold. Mm, it's absolutely cold. It's you know children learn empathy, and they learn it by caring for others. Um, they learn it through their pets at home. They learn it, or their or their little hearts turn to stone, and you see it, and then they 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 are. They're rejected and little hearts will turn to stone. And when those little hearts get to be teenagers and when they're stronger, they will lash out physically. They will hurt as they've been hurt. They'll hurt physically, but they've been hurt far more than that. Um, And and that should be a crime. Mm. You know, it is criminal what happens to little children and all we see is that criminal down the road who's done something terrible, but we don't do anything about it when we're children. Um, we allow things to happen. We allow children to see domestic violence in the home and wonder why they strike out later or wonder why they do ram raids or take other people's things because they weren't valued. You know, we, we didn't have anything growing up. We didn't, we didn't have much. But we had the things that counted. And we had those um, moral lessons, if you like. Uh, it was... It was <laughs> Mother always said, you know, I will support you, I'll protect you, but if you ever lie... So you never knew what was going to happen if you lied. <laughs> but, but it's like we do with children now. You know, if I have to count to three... And I don't know how many you've got. I never got to three. It was just the look. (laughs) And it worked. Um, But it was about protecting your child but protecting others, you know, knowing that you don't have a right to that thing that belongs to someone else. Hmm. They have earned it. It is theirs. Um, Yeah. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organisation, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology, or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. So, Chloe, can we touch back on the on the early childhood centres because um, I, I've got a sense of, of, of why you went there and how that started, as you, as you explained. But um, that started out as Kitty Corp, is that right? And yeah. But yeah. became Best Start. Yes. 
which I think is, I think the name in that says something yeah. as well about where you're coming from here, yeah. the early childhood um, side of things. So can you talk a bit more about, about that business? Because it's, it's, it's a nationwide... Yes. Is it nationwide? Yeah. How yeah. many centres have you got? I think there's just under 300 wow. um, across the country, down to in, from Invercargill, up, way up north. Uh, which probably isn't a great deal. I think it's only about 8%, but it's the biggest one. Mm. And, um, you know, we started with one and we saw the potential for what it does with children. My husband, you know, we've had many different businesses. He's very entrepreneurial and I'm, um, and I'm the risk taker. You know, I've come up with ideas. He has, some have been... Um, bit of a disaster but that one has been the one you, you we wanted to grow it when we saw what it could do and when you grow something on a scale you know you, you've got the economy of a scale which is really good and we have a lot of um, support for all of our teachers uh, which we can do when you've got just the small one or two centres People can't actually, um, it's very hard with all the administration and everything else. So um, I think it's become the gold standard or we have the like a trust mark with the government. Um, yeah. Yeah, so and is, there a, is there like, you know, like you say, it's about, it's about um, scale, but across those nearly 300 yeah. centres, is there like a consistent approach about how... You know, what's the kind of philosophy or approach towards oh. early childhood? Well, interesting. The, the philosophy or approach is, you know, there, there are certain things that the Ministry of Education demands that you do. There are certain things that you have to do that are consistent. But we believe in different areas. They have a different population. And the centre manager, who is of that area, whatever particular area, um, works within that uh, system, well not system, it works within that community depending upon um, what people want. Um, yeah, it, no, no, it's not a cookie cutter right. at all, mm. not at all. Yeah, it's what's needed in what region. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so that's, that business is now owned by the Wright Foundation. I think when yeah. you've referred yeah. earlier on to, to yes. we, we do this... Yes. You're referring to the Wright Foundation, yeah. which is your family's um, foundation. Um, and obviously that, that's it's fantastic. There's a great focus on early childhood um, um, education. But the Wright Foundation's involved in other things, and, and you are in particular in relation to oh. things like Mothers Matters. Oh, and, very much. Um, and I might just step back a bit. Sure. You know, when, when we began the early learning... Then we turned it into a public company with the view that we could grow it a lot faster and with the view that people would contribute to that because of the good that it could do. But, in fact, I don't think anyone did. They contributed with the hope that it would, they would, they would um, get payback to a large extent, which really didn't allow us to grow it in the philosophy we did. So we paid out those people... Um, and turned it back into our own company. The, the, the change to Best Start, we thought, at the time, Kitty Corp sounded okay. You know, it's 
was not about it being a corporation, but it was about children would one day work in corporate work and that kind of thing. So I think that got a bit misconstrued. And we thought about the name change that needed it. And funnily enough, we were, how it happened, we had been considering, considering, coming up with different things. And we were in our pool one night, it was about 10 o'clock, very, very starry, beautiful night. We don't have light pollution where we are. And my husband was sitting on the steps and I was floating on my back and with the, with the poles, you know, that will turn you, I was turning round and round in circles looking at the stars and it just came. And I just said, best start, as I looked at them. And he said, that's it. And that was it. <laughs> that's how the name changed. It, that, that's how it became best start. Then we checked and, and it was okay. Other people, you know, we weren't in conflict with anything. Um, but the... Um, and then with the charity, what were the questions? Like? So it's really about um, uh, the best start side of things. And I, I suppose really how that relates to your kind of personal philosophy and, you know, the right foundation are involved in other things yeah. and, you know, what, you, what you're involved in with, um, you know, birthing centres and things yeah. like that. You know, I, I, I just saw the immediate connection there in the research that best start... Is really almost like a, right. you know, like a, a philosophy for you, really, yeah. isn't it? About yeah. about from from birth onwards. Yeah. Well, well, it is, and that and that's the start. In fact, when you talk about the first thousand or two thousand days, you talk about right at the beginning of conception. But but at any rate, that's getting a little bit technical. Um, you know, over all these years, so we had been involved in early learning for about twenty years, and I and very involved. We were visiting all the centres, talking to people. Everyone kind of knew us, and there's a lot of people. Um, we, When we bought out the Australian company and doubled, we had a very, very different philosophy, and we travelled around the camper van and met everyone and told them, this is your centre, this is about you decide in your particular area what's needed, which was very different from a top-down. So we're... We really think bottom-up. Um, that's where it needs to come from if it's going to be genuine and if it's going to work. Uh, so then I talk to a lot of women. I mean, mostly they are women that work in there and got kind of involved in what makes people happy, um, what uh, works. And, you know, we've talked about those two spaces, work and home but you know there's a third space and that's what we're working with now within the foundation which is where people can come together it's a social cohesion space it's the it's the fun space if you like uh, and you know I heard story after story and then of what made people happy what didn't and you know as an anthropologist I'm always looking at and listening to what makes a successful society. And there are certain key things in there, which we don't need to... That's kind of another whole thing. <laughs> but um, then I can't recall what it was, but there was someone who had a baby. And 
I saw the vast difference between when we had our children and the care and the time that you had in the um, facility, whether it be a hospital or a maternity home or whatever, but the care you got, the checks you got, the, the teaching you got. And then I, and I saw, and I remember reading an article in the Auckland newspaper, and it was a young Māori girl, about 16, who had a baby, and the, and the treatment she got, and I was horrified. And so I looked more closely, and I saw that now it had become very clinical and birth had, um, and it was about numbers and moving people out. And so I decided, um, again, without, without any medical, apart from anthropology, any medical background, nothing clinical, this isn't right, and why not? There was someone who had was going to build a primary unit and they needed financial support, and I was asked, is this something you'd be interested in? And I'm like, yes, I'm very interested in it. Not as a business, but that we can make a difference. So um, jumped in there um, in, in a very short while, it became obvious that the other people in it were looking at, at it as a business. And it really couldn't be a business, actually. Um, we didn't have any funding. Uh, but my purpose was to create a space that women actually had a legal right to but weren't getting, and that I could show the government, instead of just saying, I would like to do this or do that, but I could show with data and with the narrative that this made a massive difference in the start of life for women's mental health, therefore the health of the child. Um, so away we went um, within, in Tauranga here, uh, and I had... Um, and that was a difficult beginning um, because, quite frankly, uh, I met with a group of midwives who told me if they didn't run it, then they would make sure that no one came to it. Uh, it was very disappointing. So I'm going to be quite frank about that. Um, again, it was the arms folded across the belly and the, and the cross tackles. So off we went anyway because my concern was let's, let's create a difference in the country. This is not just about this. So we built it and, and, and a couple of people at the DHB... Fortunately, they had heard over and over again, oh, we need a primary unit, but they supported it, and we got funding. We didn't, we've only just after nine years broken even, we've had to put a lot more into it, but, but it was to create the difference. And then we built one down in Palmerston North and Lower Hutt, and then we built a beautiful centre up in South Auckland, right on the edge of Mungaree Township. We got part funding in Palmerston North because we'd proven ourselves here. We got no funding in Lower Hutt, but we had the hospital sending women to us when they were on red alert and worse. Um, they would just send them, to, but they wouldn't give us a contract, wouldn't, uh, a contract, wouldn't give us funding. In Naho Mangere, amazing, amazing centre run by Pacifica Māori, um, no funding at all for four years now. That one costs about $1.8 a year to sustain. Um, but we've had absolutely 
no support from the government um, with all the invitations. So that's why in the foundation, uh, well, I began Mothers Matter, to let women know about um, their legal rights at birth, and they do have them. They, no one has any right to throw a woman out of hospital after birth, but it's done and it's condoned. Um, I think in our country, women do not use their voice enough um, for various reasons, sometimes cultural, sometimes because it doesn't affect them right then and there. And I've always been about individual empowerment and I get very passionate about this, so you probably have to stop me. <laughs> no, no. But So we did the Mothers Matter campaign and that still remains um, to bring... Uh, recognition. We did the film Who Holds Our Mothers. We had thousands of response from people that we'd saved lives. We had four, two academics, someone from the Mental Health Foundation and one other person who complained. Thousands of people wrote in how much it had helped them, the recognition um, from that. And then, um, you know, I, I do various clips, we've just done the ones um, Good Dads Everywhere we need to recognise that uh, and now we've just launched The Village which is about on the one hand a lot of digital help um, in very you know, we'll, we'll be doing podcasts webinars, putting people like um, Nathan Wallace and various other um, Richard Poulton, uh, Sir Peter Gluckman on there but most importantly is creating um, that uh, social connection. And we see that with our support growing it throughout the country where people uh, don't have to feel isolated. If they want to get together in groups, you know, um, uh, Claire, who works for me, is a great surfer. If there are women who want to go surfing together, walking together, families, getting families together... You know, it's not going to be easy, but it actually comes from bottom up and it has to come from bottom up. We're not going to be connected. You know, government's never made a good mother. Um, they are not a good mother. Uh, they can support various groups that we support who do amazing work that a government will never be able to do. Uh, but... I've recognised what matters most to people is connection. And that's where we're headed. And I'm really excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me really happy, actually. That's yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. The, the birthing centres, I'm interested in, because uh, obviously I drive past one um, every, every day. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, with my youngest, we always see what's, there's a, you know, the big circles on the mm. wall, whether it's pink or blue, as to, you know, yeah. Uh, what, what what child's just been born or whatever. So it's um, we're, we're familiar with that. What what was it that you were? I mean, I think you touched on it, but just I think maybe a little bit more detail about what were the birthing centres there to um, either replace or add that wasn't there in the public system. Oh. And 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 how how you know the success of your? I mean, they're still around now and and. Obviously, like you've just exp um, explained, uh, you're, you're funding those and they're obviously there for a purpose. There's a need for them. So, you know, what was, you know, 
I'm, I'm assuming, and based on research, that there's gaps in the system or the system mm. wasn't coping. And mm. so you felt that there was a need there to um, fill that gap or at least or do something different. And maybe if you could touch, so if you could touch on that and what the difference is that you, your, your senses are making. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you've got to look at the long... I look at the long-term picture. I look out to the horizon. I'm not looking at just now. You know, just now... You know, you need to feed bellies, you need to do certain things. But mostly you need to create change. And that change should be in policy and also in people's behaviour, if you like. Not just perception. Perception's one thing, and that's incredibly powerful. But in how we behave um, and, and how policy... Policy only changes when bottom-up comes up and says... This is not acceptable, what you're doing now. Um, and we have been unsuccessful in that. You know, I, at one point there I thought I'd really failed. I don't think I've failed, but I haven't been as successful as I wanted to to create change. So for the birthing centre, people are getting great outcomes. They are talking about the difference between birthing there and someone else. They're talking about the difference in care. And I think in the hospital, you know, they're stretched. They're giving birth unless there is a real physical reason. is not a hospital thing. It's a natural process unless there are complications. But we've made it very clinical and, and with a lot of midwives, it's become very clinical, pass the mother on kind of thing. And that's not what she needs. She, will have, she has long-term um, consequences if, if she's not treated properly. And I'm talking about mental consequences often. You know, in, in so many other places, the care for mother is so much better than here. We should be having... Louise Upston was a great champion for this. She came up with her um, first thousand days policy, which I'd hoped the government would pick up on. But, you know, as usual, they've completely ignored it. It was, it was the best system that I've seen that could happen. Every year the government puts out... They, they, they get the research back about birth the care, primary birthing, everything, they get the same research telling them the same thing every year of the importance of those first few days, the first thousand days, and they do nothing. Nothing. You know, there is a lot of talk, but no do. And, you know, and that's my experience after nine years of being very heavily invested in it. So... You know, the, the beginning of life, you know, as I've said, support parents, but support them in the right way. It's not just giving more money to buy some bread. It's about recognising, and the, this is the thing, we talk about the, the, the gap between the rich and the poor, or the haves and the have-nots, but we don't seem to relate it to education. You know, if you're working at a takeaway bar... Um, of some kind or other, uh, because you're not educated to do any more, then 
likely you're not going to be able to buy a nice warm house. You're not going to be able to give your children music lessons or give them experiences um, that cost money. And money comes through education and satisfaction comes through education of heading in the direction you want to head and being mindful and just being more educated about the world and the people in it and how you can make a difference. You know, you cannot have... I watched a programme on television the other night or morning. You cannot have a household with 14 people living in it and sleeping on the floor and likely one bathroom without people getting sick. You know, with very few um, earners in that household. You can't have much fun, quite frankly, in a household like that. And to get out of it requires education. So instead of talking about child poverty, which we don't, we talk about parental poverty. But most importantly, in those situations, the thing that hurts me is the poverty of spirit. That is the worst poverty. Mm. Well, you've got me going now. I'll be, I'll be heading <laughs> off into the environment. No, Stop. No, 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 it's good. It's good. It's good. It's, these are threads that we like to follow. But I, if I can, I'm just going to go back a little bit yeah. again to, you know, because I suppose I'm making some connections, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, um, with the birthing centres, uh, you know, again, it's not the early childhood centres, but the, it's about having the best start, mm. isn't it? Mm. And so, and maybe you can correct but, me if I'm wrong here, but I'm thinking about, you know, giving birth in the, in the right way and having the right support. And, and, and particularly if you're a first-time mum, I would imagine, you know, you don't know what you don't know. No. You might feel physically fit to walk out, but actually there's a lot that you don't oh, know yeah. about looking after a child and looking after yourself in order, yeah. you know, looking yeah. after yourself so you can look after your child. And I, I imagine that, you know, at that point in time, that's when people actually need the support oh. when they even maybe they don't even realise that they need the support yeah, right. in order to mm. have the best start with their child, have the best connection. Because mm -hmm. if they don't have the best connection, then it's that kind of, you know, I was talking about something else the other day with someone, and it's, you know, one millimetre apart and then, you know, in the distance it's actually metres apart. Yeah. If we don't have the best connection from the start, down the line... We're, we're disconnected. Yep. And how can we influence then as parents if we've not got that connection? Is that Am I kind of stitching uh, things together in the right way there? Or? Yes, Steve. I think that especially first-time parents who have read all the books, you know, even when they're really, really prepared, um, they're looking forward to this, they're touching their bump every day, they may be talking to this unborn child, they're so excited. And... When, and we've seen it over and over again, and a baby is born, and this is in the environment of the birthing centre, which is just an incredible environment, very supportive, and suddenly there is this, oh, now, you know, this child's here, what are we going to do? And there's confusion um, very often for the dad. His expectations are he doesn't understand why... She's cr suddenly crying and uh, her hormones are all over the place and the responsibility. And then, you know, the, we, 
we talk a lot about postnatal depression, but we like to talk about more because that does happen and, and that needs to be attended to and often it isn't. And if it's not, lifelong situations occur that are terrible for the mother, for the, for the whanau, for the child. But perinatal distress isn't talked about enough. And perinatal distress is that kind of halfway house where when you're pregnant, you worry about all sorts of stuff. You, um, you see articles that make you fearful. You listen to women's stories. Women particularly love to tell stories, horror stories, outdo each other on how dreadful birth was. And we would really like to see more stories about how empowering it is. You know, I gave birth to five children. First one, 10 pounds, six, the last 10, eight. All great big babies. Um, and it wasn't till the last one that I was really empowered. And, you know, there was um, such empowerment in that. And that was because uh, back then you were not given the tools, if you like, about how strong your body is. And men and very often not don't understand that this yummy mummy isn't quite so yummy anymore. She's tired and exhausted and foreplay has to be doing the vacuuming and washing the dishes. <laughs> no, you know, that's foreplay after you, when you've got a baby. And then, you know, someone's had their third child and everyone is like, oh, you've done it before, you're okay. Every birth is different. Every child is different. And by golly, you need that support on your third child, second child, you know, all of them. You need the village. You need people to recognise and go and do the, go and do the nice stuff. Get some groceries, take some food. Um, don't go around to sit and have cups of tea and wear her out. Um, at the birthing centre, what we loved, oh, especially in COVID and lockdown, so we locked down the mum and the dad and no visitors, and couples found it incredibly empowering because they had each other. They had their baby, they could bond, because what tends to happen, she gives birth to the baby, she's been very important up to that, she's been the pregnant princess, and then suddenly all these visitors rush in, push her out of the way, grab the baby, it's all about the baby, and she's probably hurting, she's got breasts sore, she's got hormones racing all over the place, and then she's not important. And then she goes home and she has to feel that she's like the best mum and everyone else is competing. Oh, you know, oh, my baby at six months did, especially first-time mothers. It's a shocker. By the time you've had five, trust me, <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, you know, they'll get there. But you know, this whole competitive thing goes on and they're afraid to say that they're exhausted Maybe they're not liking being a mother as much as they thought they might. Better not say it. But it happens. And some mums end up hating their baby. They do. For, for a while, they need support. They need to understand, actually, there's a lot more that do that. When your baby's 18 months, just show me a mother who has not locked herself in the bathroom to get some peace. You know, it's just, it's all part of it. Let's be honest about it. And this is what 
I guess I'm working at with the conversation. Let's be honest, let's be open, let's be supportive. When the woman's in the supermarket and the child's screaming and crying, don't look at her like she's some bad mother. You know, I see that and I, I will always go up and I'll say, hey, been there, done that, glad I'm not there anymore. But, you know, it will pass. And now is the time to really... Um, they're not terrible twos, they're little explorers. <laughs> you know, they're stretching the limits. They're checking you out to see if they're smarter than you. You need to actually enjoy that moment. There's so much pressure on for women to get back to work or they're made to feel unworthy if they've got an 18-month-old or a two-year-old. And I think that's shocking but we're being conditioned into that. We're being brainwashed. If you're not working, you have no value. And yet you're doing the best job that you will ever do in your life. You know, I'm CE of Birthing Centre, of the Foundation. I'm very involved in business. Nothing compares to raising children. Mm. And yet, in today's society, we seem to be talking about not having children so that we can have careers. And I look, I'm more, you know, I'm, I'm open to that. I get that as well as, as to why. But, but I think there's something wrong with the system around, um, around careers and work that makes people choose uh, rather than facilitate both. Right. Um, and, and I suppose that's maybe a nice little bit of a segue of, around how things have changed. You talked there about the village just that piqued my interest um, because you know if you think if we think back to when your mum had her children mm. nine of them mm. um, compared to today and the expectations around how we how we give birth and the, the health system and you know it's I'm all right in sort of thinking that it's maybe a consequence of population and, and not coping with, not being able to provide the same level of care and service, time and nurturing because of the population increase and we've just got to keep the churn, for want of a better phrase. Yeah, I, I think um, the cost of living, I mean, we're all talking about that and it's shocking. Um, you know, trying to build a house, doing all of that, it's, it's forcing people where they need the two incomes. And how do you have, you know, two or three young children work full-time? You have to be so organised, but even when you're so organised, then come home, probably probably most of that work falls to the woman. Um, when there is a joint sharing of domestic responsibility, that is great, and that's worked far better in societies than our sort of older traditional thing with men went out to work and the woman stayed home and did all that. Now, you know, there can be a balance, but when you talk about a career, I think at this stage in my life that you can have it all, but you've got to have it in the right time. And we, you know, a lot of people now are saying, um, dare I say this, yes, I will, um, a lot of young people have the sense of entitlement and that you can't fire anyone even when they're absolutely 
hopeless and don't turn up and do all sorts of negative things makes it very difficult. When you're in business, you actually really don't look forward to hiring people. You've got to handpick people. But when you've got a couple working and a young family and they've got to shoot out the door really early and then they get back in and then they've got to take care of the normal sort of things, meals and cleaning and washing... Do they have the time to sit and read with their child? Do they have that time to, when the child just needs you, do they listen to what the child is saying or do they just go through the motions, get them into bed and um, collapse? I, I don't know. I was very fortunate that I could do a lot of things. I was a very high-energy person. I still am a very high-energy person. Um, but how do you do it? And how do you do it if there's only one person in that household? How can you do it? I've spoken to so many mothers who have a supportive partner. You know, th th there are two parents in the home, and they say, how can a person with only one adult function and do that? It's hard. And that's why, you know, in the village or the third space, we need that opportunity for people to be able to actually be cared for, but be part of something else, not just cared for, but actually care for others. You know, get the energy. You, we get energy from the sun. We also get it from other people. Mm. You know, people give me energy. Yeah. I get to the point of quite exhaustion and then I can meet someone and I'm excited about them, what they're doing or what they're thinking. You know, I've learned to say when I once would have heard someone come up with very odd um, ideas, I think I can put it that way, now when I hear someone come up with something or some conspiracy theorist, I will say, that's a really interesting perspective. Whereas I might have said something quite different once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, we, we need to be, you know, get back to that, whether the, the village, the connection, someone caring. The mother I talked about who had the ten children was losing the other one, that the only time she would have been cared for when we, she was hapu... We need to be cared for and we need to care and we need to learn empathy when we're very young or we're going to end up with hearts of stone who have no compassion and the most dangerous people on the planet are those without empathy. Mm. Yeah. So that's what I'm about. Yeah. Connection. <laughs> I think that's the, the, you know, been a theme, isn't it, really... Um, throughout the conversation here and, and I, just picking up on what you're saying there about care the need to care to give care mm -hmm. and also be cared for yeah and they're it's important. a doing word yeah yeah and the, having the seeing the opportunity not having there's always the opportunity but seeing oh. the opportunity to do that and also maybe knowing how to do it and and having the feeling like you've got the freedom to do it not be boxed like we started off mm -hmm. this conversation and feeling constrained by my what of things that may have gone before that you may have been influenced in your childhood in your upbringing yeah. in your community that 
says actually I shouldn't allow myself to care so much or show care for mm. other people. I think there's an element of that in workplaces too with leadership around, you know, it, it's a job and my job is to make sure you do your job as opposed to caring. And how can we expect people to care for us if we don't care for them? Mm. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, that's sort of coming to my mind as, as I'm thinking about this, um, Chloe. You know, just even the physiological stuff, the chemicals, the uh, oh. oxytocin, serotonin that we get, we have to get from other people. If we don't care, we can't be cared for, therefore we don't yeah. get that element. And then we just got the dopamine and endorphins that, you know, that, that are selfish. Which chemicals. we can get chemically if we want. And Yeah, absolutely. And we just get ourselves. We don't need anyone else for it. But that's only half of life. Yeah. It's... Um, I met a man and... He was bent on believing that everyone used him. Everyone was out for what they could get for him, from him, and that he wasn't going to do anything for anyone because, you know, it was all bad. His life was all bad. And his life wasn't bad, I must say. He owns a huge farm and um, has all the freedom in the world and so forth. But anyway, he was really determined um, to to not be part of anything. And so I met him again another time because I was very interested in him. And he told me that he had a um, DNR on, on himself, so do not resuscitate if anything happened to him. And so I said, see, this is the thing, you've got to break down walls. And that's how you can help people. And I said, well, I said, if you collapsed in front of me, I would do CPR on you and I would revive you. And you know why I'd do it? And he was like looking all grumpy and I said, just to annoy you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and now he actually talks to me a little bit because it was like, stop it. You know, and I think sometimes when people put up, put up walls or, you know, if you had to go into a Wynn's office or some other office, and I'm sure there are wonderful people, but I've heard a lot of stories about shame and embarrassment and so forth. And, you know, people put up that glaze and there's no expression and they're just... And maybe they're doing it because they have to say no a lot or because they can say no, I don't know. But breaking down those walls and actually connecting on a human level. I like to break down walls. I just do. Mm -hmm. um, I'll do anything to break down a wall and bring someone into a circle. What is it that drives you to do that? Because I hate to see people unhappy. I'm a nurturer. Mm. I'm just a nurturer. I can't help it. I cook. I like to... Um, probably to my detriment, I suppose, time-wise. And I just, I, wanted, I want people to be happy. I just do. Mm. I can't bear it when people are unhappy. Mm. But I've, I had a question I wanted to ask you about. You obviously do a, a lot of great work. And um, look, you, you, you and your husband, your family have obviously you know, worked hard and you've achieved a lot and... You, you probably don't need to work, but you do. Well, I don't uh, and, get paid anything. And you do a lot of work, <laughs> right? And you're involved in a lot of things. And yet you don't have to be. Um, but, but you do. And I, I've, I've read 
I've read articles, um, I've read some of the things that you've said as well, where you get a lot of criticism or people pulling you down or, you know, poking and questioning yeah. why you're doing things and trying to pull things apart that you are trying to do. How does that feel? Well, you know what, a few years ago, someone said I should be raped and sodomized. Someone who didn't know me, but one of the critics. And I looked at that, and it was a woman. And I thought, something terrible has happened in your life that you would say that. And it didn't matter. Um, it was it was more a case of like, oh, that's pretty strong. And then it was sort of a, a, a moment of, you don't even know me. And then a recognition that for a woman to say I should be raped and sodomized, something terrible has happened in her life. And going back to the hearts that turn to stone and wanting to hurt someone else. It it well one, I don't go on Facebook and read stuff. Now and then I will go and I'll do smiley faces or what a lovely thing. But I don't look at those things. And even if I did, why would I? Why would I? And why would it why would I allow something like that to stop me? Why would I? Because it says more about that person than it does about me. It I mean, really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I don't care because I know who I am, I know what drives me, I know what I what I want to achieve, I know I've got one shot at it. You know, as I say, this is not a dress rehearsal. And I think, you know, people have talked about legacy. I think, well, I have a belief that we always are. Not, not gonna, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I think I'm a spiritual, I am a spiritual person. I think we have always been and we will always be and we take with us our knowledge and our experience. And I will not take with me someone else's, um, I suppose, stuff they have to carry around in a heavy bag. Because when someone focuses on wanting to destroy you, basically, it must be very frustrating to them to know that they can't I mean, that would be in an awful place. So I kind of feel sorry for them in a way. And I wish their life, lives would be better or could be. What makes you so either angry or um, envious, if you like, of someone else? And I think that's sad. And I think that those people, if only, you know, in a way, I'd like to sit down with a whole room of them um, and just say, look, you could do so much. You've got one shot in this life. Why not use that passion that is so negative and turn it into something and go out and do something? Mm. It doesn't matter. You know, the, the people I love, um, my friends and my family, the people I love know what drives me, know me. And do, does it matter about strangers? Mm. It, it doesn't. No. I mean, would you be bothered? 
It's a good question. I'm not sure, actually. I, I don't know. I think maybe... I'm, I'm glad you've asked that question because what I was thinking about is, you know, is there a part there... I'll, I will answer your question, but I was just thinking, is there a part there of your ability to, like, compartmentalise and say that's about them, not about me? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's got to be an element of that that's made you and, and your husband um, successful. Because if we care too much about what people think, we tend to sort of do what we think they want us to do rather than what's needed to be done. And yeah, but so I, think, I think, Steve, we have to care about the things we can affect and do. Mm. We can't care about um, things that we cannot change. Mm. We can try and change things, and it must always be for the positive. Why would you want to change something and make it really bad? And maybe those people who are like that, well, I guess they do. They want to... They've got to be unhappy, sad, angry, and they want they don't want anyone to be happy. Mm. I was talking to a young woman recently, really interesting, and she was recently a mother, and, and she was looking after her child and she was getting a hard time about not going back to work and she said to me they don't I'm happy you know they were building a home and and she's loving this role she said I don't think my friends want me to be happy and I'm happy and they sit around talking about their partners and you know um, really sticking the knife in but I'm happy and they don't like it and, and that, that, that is such a waste. Mm. You know, it's not easy to actually even be born. Mm. It's not easy to be that, you know, I mean, a day later you might have been, I might have been a boy with a whole different mindset, which I'd hopefully like. But, <laughs> you know, I'm really happy. I'm sure my parents didn't actually want to have nine children, but it wasn't that easy in those days. Mm. Um, oh, thank God, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I think now. You know, you might not always think that day to day, but um, what a one hell of an opportunity to be on the planet and yeah. to do something. Yeah, true. You said then just uh, that's what I think now. Your, your attitude towards that's about them and not about me in relation to what people might say about you. Is that something I, I'm thinking about answering your question here? Yeah. Um, is that something that's changed over time? Is that what you think now? Did you always oh. think that way, or I, I was outwardly well, I was very thin-skinned and highly sensitive, probably because I was very creative child and highly strung, if you like. And it's not that I've got a thick skin; I still have a huge, like one of my sons said to someone. My mother's got a massive heart and us five, being the children, are right at the centre of it first and then she's got a heart big enough, you know, for, for anything. Um, I have disallowed my sensitivity to get in the way of what I need to be doing. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so I, I'll, I'll answer, yeah, I'll answer so the question. So I, I'm going to answer it this way, that... Even just a few years ago, probably would have been more sensitive to what what people's thinking was, what they thought about me, what they said. Mm. I've I've learned, and I'm still learning, 
to pay less attention to that because you know opinions are like assholes, right? Everyone's got yeah. one. Um, but actually, <laughs> what's important is my opinion and the opinion of those closest to me. Yeah. And so I've I've got to do what I've got to do. So the answer to the question is maybe I used to, or I would have cared mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. But I've learned probably through education, which is a combination of talking to people like yourself, uh, reading a lot, listening, observing. Yep. Um, I'm learning uh, to, to care less about the things I should care less about and care more about the things I should care more mm-hmm. about. Which comes back to probably the first point that you've made, in, and that is it's all about education. It's yeah. about understanding. Yeah. And yeah. If we're not learning all the time, then maybe mm. we always will care about the things we shouldn't care about. Mm. And I think it's an age thing as well. I think that, you know, you go through stages. Well, look at um, someone was telling me who works in a, um, what do you call them, um, where people go and get all sorts of stuff done, um, um, appearance place. And they were having 30-year-olds were going in and doing all sorts of procedures because they were on social media and they were feeling they had to live up to like a Kardashian thing, which mm. I'm sure any of those women, if you saw them in their natural state, wouldn't look like they do anyway. And that's really sad. And I think that when you when you get when you get older, I had a professor once and an Indian woman, and she said the best thing to me because I'm always rushing, and I'm always looking ahead, and she said. All it was so simple, be present in the moment. And I've learned to be present in the moment. So if I'm in a hurry and someone wants to talk to me and I can see it's something they're really feeling, I'll stop. And I won't say like I would have once, I've got to go. You know, I remember park, I was went to my car, parked on a road, a lot of cars were parked, and there was a young woman sitting in the car next to my car. She was a young Asian woman. And she was sobbing her heart out with her arms on the steering wheel and sobbing. I could hear her through the window. And I tapped on the window and I said, can I help? Because it's a stupid thing to say, are you okay? People say, are you okay when you're obviously not? And so I said, can I help? She's like, no, no, and she was sobbing and sobbing. And so I just, um, and then she wound the window down a bit and I just said, look, I'm going to be in my car here. I'm going to be here for, I'll, I'll, I'll stay for 10 minutes or so. If you need someone, I'll be here. And I had to be somewhere else, but I stayed there. And then after a while, she stopped and she was just sitting kind of like looking and I think she was getting ready to go. But it's being present in that moment for a total stranger who may not be a stranger anymore after that. Mm. You know, that's a really cool thing. And I think your question before, how do I feel when people say all these things? And I think they don't know me and they're a stranger. I wonder how they'd feel if we weren't strangers. And I would be open to that. You know, it's... It's just sad. Mm. It's not sad for me. It's mm. sad for them. Because mm. I'm not going to waste the breaths that I have in this life. I'm going to give it my best shot. And then one day I won't be here. 
And that'll be a damn nuisance to me, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. So giving it your best shot, um, you, you're, you've, you've achieved a lot, as we've already um, touched on. There's so much more that, that we haven't covered. But, and you're still working hard in lots of areas in the, fa- in the work of the foundation. Um, what's, what's next or what, what's, what are you going to keep pushing towards? I mean, if we talk about legacy, you touched on it earlier. What is the, you know, the, oh, you've already got a legacy, but what, what is it that you want to achieve still? And oh. what, what keeps you going? What I want to achieve now, well, it, it's really a continuation. Um, with the launch of the village, I want to, to see, I want to have where I see all over the country people getting together in groups and doing fun stuff. We don't use that word. We don't, we don't celebrate. That's why I love being involved with Pacifica people. They celebrate. They know how to celebrate. They know how to sing. Um, I want to see something that I've had a vision for come to fruition, and it will be with a, a, a very tight, small team I've got of people. So I always have a strategy. I always know the end game, but it's never really the end. Um, But it's about connecting people all around the country. You know, our focus in the foundation is only New Zealand. I had a dream once of going to Africa and living there and helping people. But then when we came back from living in Texas, um, when we thought about what are we going to do, and I saw very big social changes here, And I thought, we have so much need. I mean, a lot of people are doing wonderful things and sending money off to Thailand and places. But we've got terrible problems here that are just hidden. We have such an underbelly of despair. You know, we only see the good things when... You know, sadly, when a, when a disaster happens, when there's a storm or whatever and people get together in a community and help each other, and then when it's over, it's over. You know, in New Zealand, you can walk down the street, people will hardly say hello. I'm kind of like, well, I probably shouldn't say this, I'm like the village idiot. I'll say <laughs> hello to everyone. <laughs> because, um, but they don't. You know, you're in France and everyone is bonjour to everyone and kissing on the cheek and recognising. But it used to be like that here, though, right? I mean, well, I, I, I came here 25, as I told you earlier, um, I came here 25 years ago um, from a very large city in the, in the north of England. And um, when I first came to Tauranga, my experience was that everybody would stop and say hello to you. And my immediate yeah. response, I'm ashamed to say, was to put my hand on my wallet and be thinking, what do they want from me? <laughs> <laughs> because that didn't happen where I'd come no. from, and if it did, there were ulterior motives. Yeah. So it was very friendly, very engaging. Everybody had time to talk to you, to say hello, you know, tip the cap kind of thing. Um, but but I, I don't I don't see that now. I'm not. Well, no, that's that's wrong to say. I see less of it. Yeah. It's yeah. It, it's diminishing over time. And that's why we need to kind of reverse that back. And you know, and it's not going backwards. It's actually going forward in a more positive way. You know, people are like, you know, oh, do you want to go back into... The, well, they don't say that to me, actually. But, you know, if you want to go back into the past, no, you want to go into the future with connection and a far more healthy society. And healthy societies are not made up 
from people who, if they're, you know, someone talks to them, they're like, what do they want? You know, that's not healthy. Um, we get, you know, it's about being open. You know, people are afraid. I think that's a big part of it. They're afraid to actually reach out and, you know, touch someone in that really good way. It doesn't matter. Someone came to me one day, they were fundraising. It was actually for the big piano in, in Bay Court many years ago. And um, she was made keen on getting this piano. And she came and knocked on my door and she was so embarrassed. And we had a good talk and she said, I hate this. You've given me the job to do this. I hate it. I hate it. What am I going to do? People will say no. And so we talked for a while and I said, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst? And the worst was people could say no. And I said, well, people will say no. But some will say yes. And then that piano ended up in Bay Court. And she came and sat with me and she said, it was that one talk where you said, what's the worst that can happen? And it's not that bad. You know, it's not. I don't care if people say no to me. Well, I care if the government say no. and And they have. But then... But what, but what hurts is they're saying no to all these women and women becomes the family and, you know, th- that whole thing. They're saying no to that and that's what I'm not going to lay down about. Well, Chloe, I, I wish you all the best with, with all that you're working on <laughs> uh, and who knows what else uh, that you'll, you'll come up with that you'll be working on as well in the future, but all the best for that. I... Um, I've, I've enjoyed our conversation, not just this recorded conversation, but uh, people won't realise that actually we ended up talking for an hour before this. Uh, I could probably talk with you all day and listen to, to what you've got to say, um, but I can't take all, all day because you've got so many things to work on. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, look, thank you very much for your time. Oh, I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, and I, I wish you all the best for everything that you do going forward. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank and you. and you must come by someday. Just give me a call and you and your wife and have a cup of tea. Sounds wonderful. Thank That's you. Very English. Awesome. Thank you. As you will hopefully know by now, if you've seen other episodes, this segment of the podcast is all about wisdom worth sharing. From our guests who are living a life that's a story worth retelling. At the end of every interview, I look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversation and summarise them here. Now, I've been very fortunate to have met so many lovely, amazing people on this show. A few of them I'd known previously, but strangely, there's been one or two who I'd never met before, but instantly, it felt like I'd known them for a long time. And Chloe was one of those people. Being CEO of the Wright Family Foundation, which owns the largest child um, childcare and education business in New Zealand, Best Start, developing the birthing centres, running Mothers Matter, being involved in so many other organisations and having received the New Zealand Order of Merit for philanthropy, being one of New Zealand's wealthiest people. Chloe could have been a bit intimidating, formal and matter of fact, but I found her to be the opposite of that. Chloe had arrived for our interview about 25 minutes early, so we went for a coffee while the team were preparing the studio. And that 25 minutes flew by, as did about another hour, as the conversation just flowed. 
Now, you might be wondering why I'm banging on about this, but that's because it's extremely relevant to my personal why. And that is that everyone goes to work, who goes to work, is able to feel happy, safe, and successful. And for that to happen, we need leaders in every walk of life who have the skills and abilities that Chloe has to be able to be instantly put people at ease and enable them to open up and share their thoughts without fear. And by being leading by example and doing that first to show that it's okay. Leaders like Chloe listen attentively to understand and then they respond in ways that demonstrate you've been heard. It's not rocket science, but it's powerful stuff and it makes a huge difference to how people feel. As Chloe said, take time, be present with them. People are the most amazing creatures. So Chloe is a leader who doesn't need to work. Uh, She doesn't get paid for the work that she does, but she does it to make a difference. And she's doing that on a number of levels. Why is she doing it? Because she cares. Again, this is a fundamental requirement for leaders to be good and successful. They need to care. Chloe studied anthropology at university, but she was learning about how the world works as a young child. Brought up in a family of nine children, Chloe says that she was, and still is, a free spirit. She'd want to be boxed or labelled growing up. As a family, they didn't have much, but what they did have was a strong family unit, support and guidance from parents that were able to influence free spirits without being seen to do so. Some of that included giving Chloe books at an early age with certain stories that created learning opportunities for her. That would be the start of a lifelong passion for reading, learning and education. Chloe's parents were obviously very smart people. They probably had to be with nine kids. It's clear that what they did provide was the best start for Chloe and her siblings. It's probably no surprise then that this was the same approach that Chloe and her husband had and they would apply to raising their own five children and then also in business. It even became the name of the extremely successful business, Best Start, which is the largest early childhood education business in the country with 300 centres nationwide. After returning from an extremely successful business venture overseas, Chloe and her husband wanted to do something with the money that they now had. They wanted to make a difference. An event which involved a teenage boy who had stolen from her family influenced their decision. Again, what I heard in this story was about the skills of a leader. Instead of reacting, as most people naturally would, and leaving this boy to be dealt with by the police and the system, Chloe created a bit more space between the stimulus and response and thought about how she could make a difference with this boy. Her passion for reading and learning kicked in again, and she wanted the boy to read three books of her choosing, one a month, and then write 300 words and sit down with Chloe to discuss them. She wasn't being mean or exerting power over the situation. She was trying to give the boy a chance and for him to learn something as part of the process. Unfortunately, though, he didn't take part in the process. and He eventually was led back into the system. Chloe didn't just move on from that, though. She learned that the reason the boy hadn't participated was that he couldn't read. She was both astounded that the system would let someone get through school and not be able to read, but also that she hadn't realised that this could be a barrier to her plan being successful. Chloe learned from this. 
again, showing leadership skills of self-reflection and being open to learning from things that don't go so well. This incident caused Chloe to want to do something about this situation. Her passion became the start that children have in life. This, of course, led to the early childhood education centres, but then also to a focus on the very start of life and the most important person for any child, her mum. Chloe became aware of the issues with mums being churned through the maternity facilities in hospitals too quickly, due to both the need to move people on as a result of increasing demands on maternity wards nationwide and the willingness of mums who felt okay to leave, not realising the importance of receiving the advice, guidance and support that they will need. The kind of care placed around mothers that Chloe remembers receiving when she had her children. Chloe then started to invest in birthing centres around the country, the idea being that this would relieve some pressure from the maternity units in hospitals, but also be able to provide a more comprehensive experience for mums as they started their journey of motherhood. Clearly, Chloe stated that the most important days for children are the first 1,000. What happens in that period shapes the future for the child, but also for the mother. She firmly believes that the start of life determines how we turn out, and that what we are seeing in society today is a reflection of how we've been starting our children's lives. And I couldn't agree more. I think in this busy world of instant gratification, high activity, high stress, the need to work, work, work to pay the bills and is resulting in parents who, let's face it, don't get a user's manual when they take their child home for the first time. They're inadvertently neglecting to do the simplest but most important tasks of all, and that is to spend time, quality time, with their children, reading with them, helping them to grow up to be learners. Getting the right advice about how to look after, feed and nourish children in their formative years could be the difference between them growing up healthy or with health issues from bad habits that started when they were very young. I think the way for the government to avoid having to pay for and fix our health and societal issues like we have today, essentially being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, is to help us help ourselves. And the best place to start with that is at the start of life. We need to be investing much more into ensuring that our future generations have the best start they possibly can. The work of Chloe and the Wright Family Foundation are already making a huge difference in this area. Hopefully, you've been able to take many insights away from this interview that you can apply to some aspect of your life, work and legacy. Use them, share them with others. As I always say, sharing is like teaching and teaching helps us retain what we've learned and commit to change, which of course is necessary if we are to enhance our life's work. I hope that you are happy, safe and successful in all that you do. And remember, live a life that's a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.